Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Kinney interview series. Today's interview is with Hugh Polner, senior consultant with Aether, an economics policy and strategy consulting firm. Hugh is a multidisciplinary water resource management and Asia engagement specialist with on the ground experience in Australia, China, Malaysia, Myanmar, and the UK. Before joining Aether, he worked in the federal public service with the Murray Darling Basin Authority. He worked in the non-for-profit sector with AsiaLink, in the international consulting business with China Policy, and in the tertiary education sector with ANU. Hugh is an accomplished innovator. He co-founded the successful and sustainable Australia-China Youth Association, which we discussed in this interview, and he helped leverage a major grant from the federal government to establish AsiaLink business. In this interview, we cover a lot of ground. We discuss, firstly, lasting, meaningful connections and knowledge sharing between Chinese and Australians, Aether's valuing water framework and how countries might be able to engage with this tool, Hugh's impressions on how to strategically prioritize national water management issues with key stakeholders in order to make progress in water management. We discuss the critical importance of the water-food-energy nexus, and we talk about the growing concern of degrading surface water quality and solutions that are emerging to monitor and improve water quality. I hope that you will enjoy learning from Hugh as I did in this interview. As always, additional resources and notes can be found on Hugh's interview page at kinney.org.au. And I think that's about all I have to say in terms of an introduction. My name is Karen Delfo, and I hope that you thoroughly enjoy this interview. Really quickly, before we get started with the interview with Hugh, I want to let you know that the first few minutes of the interview have a less than ideal connection. So if you can just bear through those first few minutes, you're really going to enjoy it. Thanks, and here it is. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about your experience and uh, what's been going on with your work, and especially in terms of valuing water. I'm really excited to, to discuss that with you. And I'm hoping we can start by covering your background and how you got involved in water resources and, and the work that you've been doing across the Asia-Pacific, in particular in China. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, thanks for the opportunity to talk. Um, basically, my involvement in water resources um, goes back and links to my connection to China. I originally studied Asian studies in, in Australia. Um, so I studied Chinese language and politics and international relations and really didn't, uh, my undergraduate studies didn't have a whole lot to do with water management at all. Um, so I was very interested in contemporary China um, and a lot of the big issues that were shaping China's development and transformation. And um, one of those that basically came to my attention over the years of my undergraduate studies was water management and water availability and transboundary water management. 
Um, so I got a particular interest in um, Chinese dam building and, and transboundary uh, uh, management and the connection between water and international relations. So I kind of developed interest and then um, decided to, to focus more specifically on water in the future. So I did a subsequently did um, a, a master's degree in geography in the UK. Um, and that uh, was really 100% focused on water management and water policy. So that kind of gave me the technical knowledge um, and training that I needed to try and uh, build a career more specific specifically focused ar around water management. So now in my role at Aether, which is um, largely around international engagement and um, international business development for the company and international project management, it allows me to bring together uh, my interests in international affairs and um, my somewhat newer interests in water management. So, yeah, it's a great opportunity. When was the first time that you went to China? Was it a part of your Asian studies? Um, uh, so studies? I went. So it was just before that, actually. Um, I studied Chinese language in high school, and um, when I finished my last year of school, I had an opportunity to do a gap year in China. So there were ten of us Australian um, school leavers who were basically given a scholarship to go and study in um, a city called Shenyang in the northeast of China. And we, we studied Chinese language for a year at the university there. So um, I spent, uh, yeah, all, all of, uh, that was 2005. So I spent all of 2005 basically living in Shenyang and studying Chinese. And that was my introduction to China. Yeah, it, it definitely um, left a big impression on me. I Before I went to China, I hadn't I hadn't actually intended to do an Asian studies degree. I was going to do a, an arts, Bachelor of the Arts, um, possibly in a, a different city, um, but ended up going and doing Asian studies in Canberra because um, basically, yeah, because of the impression that was left on me by, by living in China for a year. Um, I think like any language, you know, you can study a language out of a book, but it's, yeah, and in the classroom, but, you know, it's, really doesn't compare to the opportunity to go and live in that country and be immersed in culture and society. And, um, I mean, it just, yeah, my my interest in and my aptitude for Chinese basically went from uh, not that great to uh, then getting this opportunity to go over to China to being, yeah, something that I was really, really, really transfixed by. So it was a great opportunity. And as a result of that experience and your studies, you founded the Australia-China Youth Association. And it, from what I understand about this yeah, NGO, right. it really looks at ways that young people can develop links with Australia, but it also does have a bit of an entrepreneurial business development slant to it. Is that is that correct? That's right. So the Australia China Youth Association was founded in 2008 by uh, me and a couple of other ANU Australian National University students. And um, basically, we thought that there was a fair degree of interaction going on between researchers um, uh, at, at universities between China and Australia and in business um, and cultural exchange, but not necessarily uh, much was being made out of the student exchanges um, that were happening and, and the interactions between young people in China and Australia. And 
in Australia, as in most countries in the world now, you know, there's a, an enormous Chinese community and Chinese international students from China are a big part of the populations of universities in Australia. So there's an, a great opportunity to learn more about each other's countries and cultures and languages and that wasn't really being taken advantage of, we thought, as much as it could be in Australia. So we founded this organisation um, really initially just with the intent to be sort of language exchange and that sort of thing. Um, and, and to be honest, mostly in the first instance for the benefit of Australians that were interested in China. But um, it ultimately became much more about um, uh, Chinese people that were interested in Australia as well and now it has chapters across Australia and across China um, so um, and has spawned a couple of other initiatives that are related um, so as you I think alluded to the Australia China Young Professionals Initiative is really focused on not university students but, but um, early career um, young Australians and Chinese uh, based in both countries who are interested in in learning what's going on in, in the business world and um, in respect of Australia-China links. So it's become re really multifaceted and is as much about yeah, business business links and young professional connections as it is about student, student connections. And I'm really curious how it actually works because in China you have such a different regulatory information system in place compared to Australia or really anywhere else in the world. And how has the organization helped foster those communications and develop those links and those relationships between people, both at the level of youth, but also through that early professional stage? How, do, how does it actually work? Yeah, so I guess in a number of ways. One is the chapters in the university, so actual you know, physical connections between people that are based in the same location. So whether that's Australians studying in China, like I did when I was student there or, or Chinese, you know, the many, many Chinese people studying in Australia. Um, the other element, obviously, increasingly is online. So there's uh, all sorts of groups across the various uh, Chinese and non-Chinese platforms. Um, as you probably know, there's for basically every Facebook, Twitter and other uh, online social um, social network that we might use. There's one that looks very similar, but is uh, Chinese, um, basically a Chinese product. So the connections across all of those networks are a big part of what the Youth Association does now. And then I guess the really big um, thing that we pioneered that is continuing to this day is the Australia Chinese blog. So that's uh, um, uh, happens on an annual basis, and between 30 and 50 young Chinese and Australians will um, come together at a location in either Australia or China to um, talk about, basically conduct a dialogue around major issues affecting those countries and the relationship between the two countries on an annual basis. So it's really become a kind of, I guess, track to international summit that is you know, not, not officially part of the Australia-China bilateral relationship, but very much a part of the uh, kind of people-to-people -people links that are developing between the two countries. And do those take place both in Australia and in China, or...? Yeah. Yep. So it, uh, it alternates year to year, um, in China. Wonderful. And what kinds of outcomes have you seen from the development of these relationships? Has there been any sort of concrete 
out, outcomes, I guess, that you can point out and say, yes, this is a, a direct result of the work that we've been doing of our organization and these relationships that we've built? Yeah, well, the direct pointing to direct results is can be fairly tricky, um, but or impossible. Uh, actually, <laughs> it's really hard. Or impossible. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily. No, I probably couldn't point to a specific direct result. But I guess what we're seeing. So the first youth dialogue was held in uh, 2010, I think, from memory, and so it's six years, seven years worth of youth dialogues now. And I think now. Um, the people that were involved quite early on, um, and increasingly as it gains in stature, the people who are involved on a year-to-year -year basis are already in positions of some significance. So we've had sitting uh, sitting members of parliament from Australia have participated in the youth dialogue. Um, so, you know, there are, it's, it's really is forging um, very strong links, people-to-people -people links between people that are already or will in the future have considerable influence on, on um, the Australia-China relationship, whether through commerce or government or non-government links or cultural links. Um, so I think in the future there will be, in perhaps 10 or 20 years, there will be a very extensive network of uh, people across all different sectors and industries that have uh, a kind of informal community um, that, that sits alongside their formal their formal professional networks. Um, that is, you know, it involves a lot of key decision makers in Australia and China. So, you know, hopefully, it's those sorts of links that um, you know mean that a, a strong, strong commercial and diplomatic and people to people relationship continues regardless of the ups and downs in in the kind of formal bilateral relationships. I ask because I think that's one of the interesting points that we're trying to work through with the Kinney initiative is when you do create mechanisms for sharing knowledge and you do facilitate person-to-person -person network links and building relationships, it's very difficult to actually put your finger on what, what those outcomes are um, because some of them are mm. so, especially with knowledge transfer, some of them are so inherent in the way that you think more than actually what you do. And it's hard to just point and say, oh, well, I did this, this, and this because I had this conversation with somebody six months ago or a year ago that influenced the way that I was thinking. And, and I think it's a really interesting question to explore and, and also just to state that sometimes there are no hard outcomes that come out of these sorts of things, but the value is tremendous and so incredible and, and has such a strong impact, especially when you're speaking about these people stepping up into professional roles where they're now, you know, yeah, they're, they're the ones that are doing these bilateral negotiations in a sense or representing their country and, and they have these relationships so they can actually influence and, and change the, the direction of the way that these countries engage with one another. I think it's, it's really, um, it's very impressive. So congratulations, really exciting initiative to learn about. I have a couple of ideas based on what you described, but I'm wondering if you want to share any other insights, particularly with this initiative as we're trying to link Australian knowledge with Asia-Pacific knowledge throughout the rest of the Asia-Pacific, and the cultural difference is quite vast in many cases. You have language mm. differences, um, legal differences. There's there's a whole series of different ways of approaching these issues, particularly within water resource management, um, and I'm wondering if you can share any insights based on your experience. Yeah, sure. I think the key thing for me in establishing the Australia-China Youth Association and then subsequent involvement in other forms of youth and professional networks um, 
I think the key thing is that there needs to be, one of the key things is there needs to be a clear value proposition for everybody that's involved. Um, when we were establishing the Youth Association, as I said earlier, it was very much um, because it was three Australians that started it. I guess it was very much about uh, what do young Australians that are interested in China want to get out of this idea? Um, and it was only some time later that we really kind of equalised the, the nature of the organisation around not just delivering outcomes um, and experiences for Australians with an interest in China, but also for Chinese people with an interest in Australia. So I think the organisation probably wouldn't exist today if it continued to be simply about allowing young Australians interested in China to access language exchanges and go on trips to China and uh, access internships and those sorts of things. If it was that one-sided, I don't think it would continue to exist. So I think any kind of knowledge exchange does actually need to be an exchange. Um, you know, while it might be the case that the one side of that partnership has a lot to share um, in, in one area of knowledge or experience, it will always be the case that there'll be just as much that the other partner can share. Um, and and often, you know, if, if the other partner is allowed to share that, that information, those experiences, you know, the information that's being passed to them from, from the other partner will be able to be structured in such a way that it'll be much more useful or um, much more appropriate to their particular setting. So I think that, for me, that was one of the key learnings from the ACYA experience was that it really, these kinds of exchanges and partnerships can't really function effectively without um, some kind of equality between between the partners. I think there's also a point about um, listening, really listening to what's happening. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And... Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, we... Again, you know, it's, yeah, for example, in the Australia-China relationship, there are, you know, at various stages, there are you know, various contentious issues. And, you know, in, in establishing the Australia-China Youth Dialogue, we really wanted to uh, provide a platform where, you know, some of those more difficult issues could, could still be spoken about and could be mentioned and there could be uh, sane, you know, relevant discussion about them. Um that didn't degenerate into you know, finger pointing around various um, various issues and ideas. So I think you know, in doing that, you you do need really to be able to listen uh, rationally to the point of view of the the other the other partner in the exchange. So um, if yeah, if you if you don't work off that basis, I think of mutual respect and, and listening, then it's very hard to make progress. And also with the value proposition that you spoke about and how you can put that on the table and engage another culture to, I guess, interact and help develop this whole initiative with you. That's, that's a very impressive um, and poignant point as well, I think. Uh, because if, if it starts with three university guys with a really great idea and they want to, you know, bridge a culture, it's, it's one thing, but then just saying, hold on a second, what's the value that you're going to get out of this? What's the value we're going to get out of this? How do we identify mutual value and, and build something that that goes from there is also quite critical yeah i mean yeah that's the one of the, 
the great challenges, I guess, of the history of international aid and development, including in the water management space, has been um, trying to add trying to add value where countries uh, have identified something that they realize they want or need, rather than simply uh, suggesting that. For example, what Australia might have to offer is something that they should want, uh, whether they want it or not. So I think you know, treading that line um, and, and ensuring that you're always listening to the you know, expressed needs of the relevant partners is, um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of lessons learned in that over the history of international development. Yep. Yes, and, and speaking of valuing um, and valuing water, I'm hoping we can speak about uh, the framework that has been developed that you've worked extensively on uh, looking at how do you start with valuing water and there's there's a lot to say because there have been two reports that have come out um, both kind of taking it from I think a different perspective in a sense where I really um, engage with the second report where you're breaking it down into specific steps and developing a very robust framework uh, how has that how has that process been both in terms of the development of the framework and also how is it being received and using your experience and your perspective that we've just spoken about, how do you see this framework as actually adding value to the way that uh, water management is being done in the countries that you have experience? And, um, and yeah, I guess, can you speak about that a bit, please? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's been a very challenging process, um, which I think is an indication of the, you know, the degree of difficulty involved in this, in this work. Um, as you kind of said, the paper really looks to step out some of the kind of developer and organizing, broadly speaking, universal organizing framework for how different countries and, and stakeholders might approach um, improving water use and management. And in having the aspiration of it being something that can be fairly broadly applied, then obviously you encounter the real difficulties around water management being inherently context specific as we know so if you know if water management is context specific then how can we develop a broadly applicable organizing framework so balancing that tension between recognizing that context is always uh, a very important factor and and the challenges and therefore the solutions are always going to be different how can you develop something that is um as universal as, as it can possibly be, as universally applicable as it can possibly be. So I think that's a major challenge and, you know, we've, we've worked on that and we're still working on it. Um, and I think that uh, we think we've come up with something that is starting to get to the fundamentals of good water management, that it's broadly applicable, um, but that still manages to recognise difference um, between the challenges that different countries and regions are facing. Um so that that framework we've really developed um, through uh, our own knowledge here in AFA, but also in uh, constant cooperation with the Australian government, the Australian Water Partnership, um, and ext with extensive um, interaction with um, stakeholders from non-government organisations, foreign governments, um, international peak water bodies uh, all around the world. Um, so we. we presented on some of these findings and continued to workshop our approach um, at the Budapest Water Summit in, in 2016, uh, in late 2016, and then at the Nature Conservancy's Global Water Summit in New York uh, in December last year. 
um, and also um, with the World Bank and the United Nations, who are the co-chairs of the, the high-level panel on water. So I think, you know, in developing a framework such as this, you really do need to socialize it very heavily and get a lot of input from a lot of different stakeholders um, to get to the point where you can feel that you have something that people are going to be confident in and actually willing to adopt in some way. Um, I think there's, you know, we're constantly in, in an age of ever-increasing uh, kind of production of material and ideas, there's uh, always the challenge of doing something that's going to be um, lasting and have some kind of impact rather than be another um, publication on the bookshelf. So I think there's uh, that the, the challenge is to do something that um, people are really, again, asking for in some sense and, and, and expressing a real interest in using um, as opposed to simply shoving something um, in front of people and, and hoping that they might find it handy. So, yeah, we're continuing to work on that and we're in discussion with uh, a few a few different governments and countries and working with Department of Foreign Affairs in Australia to try and um, identify uh, different partners that might be willing to pilot uh, the approach that we've been working up. So, yeah, it's an ongoing piece of work, but it's been, um, yeah, been very challenging but very exciting to see that... Um, I think there is a lot of interest out there in coming up with um, context-specific but, but very quickly actionable approaches to improving water management um, in, a, in, a, in a range of areas, but specifically as far as the Australian experience is concerned um, in, in regions facing severe water scarcity, um, which are obviously increasing in number every year. So, um, yeah, exciting opportunities ahead, I think, for that particular project. Uh, is it possible that you can share a story about how maybe a country is starting to engage with the framework in order to develop, for example, their water management infrastructure? Not infrastructure, I'm, I'm thinking more policy infrastructure. Yeah, so I think sure, that's where sure. it starts. Yeah, so we haven't uh, we haven't got an example yet, but that's, that's really what uh, 2017 is hopefully going to be all about. Um, so we, uh, we're... we're keen, I think, to work with the Australian Government and the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Australian Water Partnership to continue to finalise the framework and identify opportunities. So that's something that we're, um, we're, we're still working on at the moment. Um, and uh, we, we haven't uh, piloted this in any countries yet, but we're hoping to soon. Um, but really, in terms of how you would apply this, uh, our, our idea is that this... Um, this tool could effectively serve as a kind of diagnostic in the first instance. So uh, a, a national government or a subnational government or a catchment management authority could use the tool to identify um, strengths and weaknesses in the current approach to water management at, at that scale. So is there a sufficient knowledge of water availability? Is there clear knowledge of demand for water across different uses and users? And then from there, do you have, as you say, the policy and institutional settings in place to respond to that demand? Where are the pressure points? What are the priorities? Um, you know, there are a number of things that are going to be uh, urgent priorities in some countries, but much, you know, of much less significance in others. So, I think using the tool as a bit of a diagnostic in the first instance to say, okay, what do we need to do? And then from there, um, you know, th this um, tool essentially 
steps out a, a, pro a proposed approach to improve water management across six phases or six steps. And we would envisage that there would then be an opportunity under one or more of those steps to do a deep dive into um, uh, that particular element of water management that would be identified by, by the government in question as being particularly important to them at that time and then work with them to develop uh, you know, policy and institutional responses um, to those particular problems under that particular element of water management. So it's kind of a, an organising diagnostic and framework for developing policy responses to, to identified um, problems in, in water management. So we're hoping to identify some partners um, this year and um, yeah, looking forward to uh, continuing to work with with the government um, and the Australian Water Partnership to to progress to progress the, the work. I'm thinking in particular about um, how this framework could be used to support a government who maybe is facing because I'm thinking about some of the key issues that keep cropping up are um, you can have a robust policy in place but implementing that policy enforcing that policy. It's going to be, it's so tricky. Um, I think there's an element of strategic planning where you're looking at, okay, let's do some navel gazing. Let's figure out where we're at. Let's um, take stock of this. But then also more than just having all of the right words on paper, there's there's the issue of enforcement and, you know, identifying where exactly you need to resource different parts of your water management infrastructure. Uh, and then the other thing that keeps coming up, and I know that that's very different than, for example, here in California or in Australia or a lot of times in Europe is the tension sometimes between traditional water management and mm. institutional governmental water management. And uh, I'm just wondering, I just brought up a whole number of different issues right <laughs> there, but yeah. I was wondering if there's anything that you want to touch on and talk about, especially speaking from your experience as a, a practitioner working across the Asia Pacific. Yeah, so, yeah, I think two very critical issues that you've raised, um, the implementation element and then the, the dealing with traditional or other pre-existing uh, modes of water management and, and norms around water management and use. Um, so I think on the implementation element, clearly that, as you say, is, is, is fundamental. Um, there are many countries in the world that have great water policies on paper, but continue to see you know, suboptimal outcomes in water management um, and uh, to some extent uh, there's not necessarily much that uh, a diagnostic and framework can do around the political will and implementation elements of, of that story. Um, those those challenges are always going to be there um, and, and responding to them is, is very difficult and I think it's very difficult for particularly for external and non-national actors to come in and, and, uh, and talk about um, implementation and point to difficulties with implementation. I think we can do that, but then the, the response is um, necessarily probably going to come from the national government itself. Um, I think that uh, you know, the advantage of the kind of framework that we're developing is that it allows, potentially allows countries to identify um, if there is limited political or even limited, very limited technical resource perhaps within a country, um, you know, limited numbers of 
hydrologists, limited numbers of people that are that are able to within the public administration that are able to implement these policies. Um, you know, if we take a kind of risk-based approach and identify well, where are the regions within the country that are facing greatest difficulties? Uh, where are the what are the specific elements of water management? Um, so, if it's you know allocation between users is identified as a core problem uh, in a particular country, well, then it at least enables um, you know, a national government that, that may not have a lot of resources at its disposal to identify where it might be able to, um, to yeah. use a cliche, to pluck the low-hanging fruit or yeah, you know, to, to, identify where, <laughs> to hone in, to identify where there are opportunities perhaps to, to get the most out of the resource that they do have available to them. Um, and on the traditional, uh, you know, working in countries where there's a, a long-standing historical uh, norms and traditions around water management and use, again, you know, extremely challenging. Um, and I think there are you, certainly it's a, probably a recipe for failure often to ignore those. So I don't. I, I think ignoring those elements is not an option. Um, but likewise, I think you know, there are going to be many situations in which um, continuing to adopt those norms as the basis for ongoing water management in, in a context where scarcity is becoming worse, um, you know, populations are growing, demands for water are changing significantly, um, climate change impacts are starting to be felt. I think there is, uh, you know, there are, there are elements of those uh, norms that that will need to shift in some way. So I think um, it's, yeah, it's a difficult balance, but I think um, you know, this is where stakeholder engagement is absolutely fundamental to the process and it underlines all of our, um, you know, in our framework, stakeholder engagement is at the core of the other, the other steps and the other phases of the framework. So I think if there's... Um, if, if you lack that, if you simply, as you say, move into a country and say, well, this is what you need to do and here are the steps that you need to implement to go about it and um, you know, we'll leave it to you and I'm sure you'll be fine, then you're, again, bound to fail because, there, as you say, there are no greenfield sites and, and you know, everywhere in every country, whether or not it's enshrined in policy or regulation or institutions, there are norms and standards and traditions around in human engagement with water and human use of water um, and, and often those can be very um, very productive and very sus highly sustainable. Um, you know, water stewardship, uh, many traditional cultures obviously over the millennia have, have come up with ways to manage water that are highly sustainable. Um, so I think learning from those methods and learning how to you know, working with countries and governments and, and, and local stakeholders to figure out how to scale some of those um, approaches is is a very valuable way to go about doing things. Um, but yeah, in many instances, there will be um, you know, there will be a need to um, talk about how to you know, how to overcome perhaps unsustainable approaches to water management that have have developed over time, often simply because you know. Perhaps traditional or norms-based approaches have um, have evolved, uh, have continued in spite of um, population growth. Where now it's simply the case that if if we were to continue using water in that way, that um, 
you know, it, it would be unsustainable at the basin scale simply because populations have grown to, to such a number that, um, or, or water availability is shrinking at the same time, that um, you know, it's not going to be sustainable in the long term. So, yeah, they're very difficult conversations, um, and but the, I think they'll definitely need to be had if we're going to see progress in this area. And sometimes possibly there's even the opportunity to leverage the traditional systems in order to yeah, add validity yeah, yeah. To, 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 to solutions that are looking at the scarcity issue and the implementation side of things to address the scarcity issue. So it could yeah, be a synergy. Yeah. <laughs> could work. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And I mean, you know, there are, there are, there are many ways in which people are engaging with water that... Uh, you know, might not necessarily even be uh, recognised in, in, in regulations and, and government policy. Um, you know, Aether is, does quite a bit of work in water trading and water markets, which can be a contentious contentious area uh, internationally because of the notion that you know, water is a, a commodity or an asset, and that means that um, you know, people can, can sometimes feel that that is uh, in conflict with um, their relationship with water as a... Uh, you know, in cultural or spiritual sense, um, or traditional sense. Um, so, dealing, you know, but at the same time, you know, we are aware of um, various contexts uh, in countries around the world where, uh, in spite of that, um, there is, for example, water trading happening in some places where it's not permitted to occur. So. You know, there are obviously many instances in which local people on the ground dealing with water on a day-to-day -day basis have, among themselves, identified potentially um, productive ways to manage water. For example, by saying that, you know, on this day you can use my allow you know, allocation of water because I don't need it, or in this part of the season I don't need it, therefore you can use it. Those sorts of flexible arrangements around water allocation and use might not be recognised in... Um, in, in the actual laws of that of that country or that state or province, but um, you know, so I think yeah, it would be wrong to think that uh, local or traditional community-based approaches to water are something that you know, needs to be shifted through uh, water policy or water management. You know, in many instances, I would argue that local people um, and communities are using water in ways that probably potentially highly productive um, that, uh, yeah, but, but they need to do so in an informal manner because policy and, and legislation and regulation hasn't necessarily kept up with how people are interacting with and using water. So, yeah, I think there are very you know, complex and highly divergent contexts all around the world, um, but there's yeah, a lot to be learnt from the way that people um, have been have been interacting with water for, for millennia and are continuing to evolve and adapt those uh, approaches um, according to their different circumstances. I think the, the interesting issue of the conflict between a framework that can be applied in any context and the contextual factors that make each waterway and each community unique is a really interesting space to be working in um yeah. i feel like yes as water managers we want to find the you know the key we want to find oh this is the approach that works but it, it's mm. con the contextual factors both community contextual factors stakeholders factors but also hydrological factors make that impossible it's it's um yeah it's it's a very interesting yeah, it's a really think, interesting space yeah. 
that's why we, I guess, stress that this is a, an organizing framework and it, you know, it will, will be different in its application in different contexts. But I think the noting that, and I, I agree with you, I think the, the challenge that we face then as water managers is to acknowledge that, uh, say, for example, as Australians, we, um, you know, we have spent uh, a century or more um, formally managing the waters of the Murray-Darling Basin uh, in, in some way uh, through, through policy and regulation, acknowledging that, obviously, Indigenous Australians have managed those waters for, for millennia before that. Um, but you know, um, Australia as a country and as a collection of states has been uh, com coming to terms and agreements to manage that water in the Murray-Darling Basin for over a century. Um, but uh, part of the justification and the drive for doing this work with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Australian Water Partnership is recognising that it's actually not sufficient for Australians and indeed for, for other Western developed country governments to go into developing country contexts or highly water scarce regions and say, well, you just need to do these 20 things and it will probably take you about 30 years. There are you know, many contexts, as you know, in the world where there's simply not 30 years of time available to come up with some of the solutions that are required in order for people to have access to water to um, you know, meet their basic needs and, and um, allow them to continue to, to flourish and to access um, economic opportunities um, in, in, in terms of being able to grow food for the market and, and, and that sort of thing. So there's, uh, I think, a high degree of urgency that we can't afford to forget when we're um, considering different approaches to water management around the world. How would a country actually really get started in this process? So let's just pretend that I am small island nation X um, with population Y and I realize, oh no, you know, we have global climate change, we have a lot of other issues, we're running out of water, I would like to engage with this framework. I mean, how do we even get started? I mean, it's, what would the almost pre-step one be for a country to start to engage with the framework and start to even understand? I mean, there's, it, it's, a, it's a big burden on a, a small country or a large country, any country to figure out exactly where they stand in terms of their water resources, to have meaningful stakeholder engagement processes to to go through the sorts of things that have now been recognized as best practices in water management. Um, and I'm just curious from your perspective and with the framework that you have, how do you even start from ground zero in a sense to, to put into place something that's going to be sustainable? Mm, yeah, so I think that... Um the absolute first step is is a conversation um, between the relevant relevant individuals within those governments um, and uh, the the other external stakeholders that they wish to engage with, whether they be other national governments such as the Australian government or you know, international multilateral funders and organisations. Um, I think it's a matter of sitting down with the right people in the room and having a conversation around what it is that is really um, causing difficulties within that particular context and starting to identify the pressure points because I think um, 
as I was kind of intimating in my previous response, simply saying that uh, your country X needs to do all of the things that Australia has done, for example, in its its response to, to drought and water scarcity is not viable. Because oh, no, I would say neither- get lost. That's what I would yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So acknowledging that, uh, acknowledging time pressures, acknowledging resource constraints, I think there's a need. The, the initial phase of the implementation of a framework of this kind would be to sit down and have a conversation with the relevant decision makers in, the, in, in that in that country and say, where do you perceive the key pressures to be in your water management system? What, what are the what are the things that are not that are that are constraints to your economic development, economic growth, um, you know, uh, population, sustain you know, health health and well being of of the population, um, and you know, sustainable ecological um, you know, continuation of ecological of the ecosystems uh, in that in that nation. So. I think having that conversation um, needs to be the first step. And as you say, it's not fair to suggest that that needs to be a massively comprehensive assessment of uh, water resources in a particular country um, and water demands. I think that, you know, again, that would be inappropriate. There are many highly developed rich countries that uh, have little understanding of how much water they have in various catchments around their territory. So I think Indeed. You know, there are, um, you know, it, it would be, yeah, it would be inappropriate to suggest that there's a need for a comprehensive um, approach at that stage. And I think part of what the framework tries to achieve really is to say, given these constraints and, and um, the difficulties involved and the complexity of, of what needs to be done, what can we do? Where are the where are the pressure points, and what can we do to respond to those? That is achievable um, within the short to medium term. That is going to make a genuine difference, and that you know, we can. There is actually the political will and the ability to do. So I think, I and and we the framework doesn't necessarily do this, but I think this is the interesting next phase of the work that is kind of opened up by this framework is to say in that country what are the possible shortcuts or leapfrogging approaches and steps that the the government and and relevant stakeholders and individuals and companies and irrigators and farmers might be able to take together to accelerate progress towards improved water management um, without Going through all of the you know, all of the bends in in the journey that, for example, Australia has gone through, without taking the missteps and, and misadventures that we took at various stages. What are the you know, I think identifying the the, the leapfrogging possibilities uh, in a, in a given country context has to be has to be key because of the time constraints and the resource constraints. So um, I think that's where that. The conversation, having having people sitting in the room um, together, the key decision makers um, in in the in the in the country that is looking to reform or improve water management, and then people, relevant people uh, invited in to to have that conversation and start to lay out a bit of a, a roadmap. And I think the key individuals there um, 
I think probably are people that have, um, as far as uh, from the Australian point of view, if any, uh, if the Australian government or any Australian experts were to be involved, I think the key people that need to be included in those conversations from an Australian point of view probably has to be as well as relevant academics and others, but it needs to be people that have lived some of the um, policy experience, lived some of that policy reform process, um, preferably from within government. So I think if I was a um, uh, small island um, state minister for water and I or, or high-level um, policymaker, high-level public servant or public official in that in that country, I would be looking to have somebody sitting with me who is has has worked in that role in a, in a different country, in a different context, and and understand some of the difficulties involved in the policy process and in, as you say, implementation, getting these things off the page and into reality. Um, I think while those challenges are very different in different political systems and settings, I think shifting from, from policy and written policy to implementation is always difficult. And I think having people in the room that have done that in the past will be incredibly valuable. And just continuing on this little thought experiment, I, I'm also thinking, and and I don't want to take the words out of your mouth, but it sounds like it's not just the water people who need to be in the room. Uh, when you talk about agricultural issues, maybe on you know Island Nation X right now, we have 85% of our water use going for ag. Maybe we need to have the food people there as well, um, the energy representatives, because all of these things are interconnected, um, which which adds to the complexity, but also adds to the possibility that when the solution's put into place, it could be something that's really going to make sense in the long term. Is that right? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's absolutely right. I think um, I'm sure you've been to as many water conferences as I have where people, um, there seems to be a, a trend for people to draw attention to the fact that there are no agricultural or, or no energy people in the room and I think that you know, that is a that is a major issue um, I think that agriculture and energy are, as as key as the dominant users of water in most um, in most countries and particularly agriculture in most developing countries um, you know there there has to be a consistent constant dialogue between between agriculture policymakers and, and users of water and um, and those that are kind of dictating the terms in which in which water is allocated and and managed, um, I think without that conversation, it's going to be very difficult to to see sustainable solutions developed. And in that, you have been to some of the most high level conferences that have taken place in the past couple of months with some of the best thinkers in the space. Have there been any insights that have come out of the conversations that you've been having in this? space of, you know, let's let's get more transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary. Are there any s ideas that you can share um, that we can apply? Should we be going to them? Should we be inviting them to the water world? How do we start to bridge those those sectors, in a sense? Uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't say that <laughs> any particularly novel ideas have been put forward. Um, I, I think that we do, as water professionals, broadly speaking, we we do need to be directly engaging with agriculture. I think you know, that 
they should be invited to these uh, conversations. I know that in many cases they probably are invited but don't necessarily see value in it. So I think we need to have a conversation with the relevant people in agriculture and energy to understand what, why that's the case if they, if they don't see value in it. Um, I think that, yeah, it needs to start with um, uh, really, um, I think, you know, the concept of the nexus of food and energy and water and environment, that's fairly well established now. Um, and I think um, starting to really um, have conversations and, and develop solutions um, with participation from, from people from all of those sectors is key. I think, unfortunately, in terms of the nexus work, there's still a fair bit of it that is about that nexus, but is because it's hosted by or established by somebody from one of those one of those sectors tends to then be skewed in that direction in terms of the issues that are discussed and, and the view, viewpoints that um, people come to it from. So I think, um, yeah, we probably need to just uh, basically stop talking between water professionals about <laughs> why agriculture people don't show up to our conferences and, and ask them instead and see what we can do about it because... Um, yeah, if, if, if it's not seen to be, if those conversations aren't seen to be valuable by people in agriculture, then I think we would do well if we understood why that was the case to start with. Do you think that possibly there's also something to explore around language and terminology? I know that even within water, when, yeah. you speak, when you speak to a lawyer, you're speaking a different language than a policy person than a scientist or, you know, even wash. It's just the language and some of the words come over, but they have different meanings. And maybe we as a water community need to educate ourselves on the, the, the lexicon, the terminology behind the agricultural priorities and what they're facing and what they're dealing with. So maybe that's on us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's spot on. Um, terminology is difficult. And, and um, yeah, I mean, showing... Uh, in, in recognizing my own limitations in my understanding of the agricultural sector and what's going on there, I, I, I think I'm sure there are many key concepts and terms and ideas and developing themes that I would be not aware of, not sufficiently aware of um, to engage with. So I think that um, breaking down those those barriers of, of uh, terminology and semantics and language is um, definitely key. Well, I've, I feel like we all have new 2017 resolution to work on. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm actually, now I'm really curious, like what's going on in the agricultural world? What, yeah. what are their key con conferences that are happening? What are the main issues they're discussing? Do they develop reports based on the, the, the learnings that happen? Meeting, bringing all those meeting of the minds together and how can I tap into that? And yeah, okay, exciting, okay. <laughs> Um, what is on the horizon for you with your work? You've spoken about uh, engaging a lot of these countries in 2017 with the framework and getting started. Um, and I'm wondering what you see as the key issues overall, more broadly facing the water management sector that will need to be tackled. I think we have already talked about a couple of things, and I think this, this nexus is, is definitely a key issue. Um, but is there anything else that you've come across that you see as being a key issue that we haven't talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess one of the things that um, we haven't really touched on and that we attempt to tackle to some extent with, with the framework, but it, it is always tricky to integrate, um, 
fully is the question of water quality. And I think um, you know, for me, particularly coming from a, a China studies background, I guess, um, you know, in a country like China, the w water quantity challenges are enormous um, and very, very significant for the government. But water quality challenges are just as, if not more, if not more um, pressing uh, in the views of, of many government decision makers in China, I would say. Um, certainly, uh, water quality in terms of um, uh, man managing um, the outputs of, of industrial processes and factories, uh, managing runoff from, from agricultural practices, um, domestic domestic waste. So you're, you're speaking more about ambient water quality and surface water quality than drinking water quality, or are you talking yes, about... Yes, yes. Okay. So I'm, yeah, I'm talking about ambient water quality. So, um, you know, I think, um, and, and the, the obvious connection back to quantity is that, you know, water that is, that is, um, is so, de so polluted that you can't, not only maybe you can't drink it, but you can't even uh, use it to irrigate a field, for example. Um, clearly represents a reduction in, in an effective reduction in water quantity so I think the the two um, water quality and quantity uh, in terms of that sort of macro scale ambient uh, quality need to be need to be addressed simultaneously and um, uh, in many countries and I would again include China in this um, the public response that water quality is much more publicly, uh, obvious water quality issues are much more publicly obvious perhaps in China than water quantity issues um, and I think that means uh, certainly in cities anyway that would be the case so I think that means that um, you know as far as government decision makers are concerned the public concern if it's largely around ambient water quality uh, needs to be responded to so um, to some extent um, yeah, the, f the fact that for urban Chinese living in, in China's large cities, the fact that water quality is, is uh, in their face and, and very obvious to them that makes it part of, you know, a necessary um, item of priority on the political agenda. So I think water quality, ambient water quality is a, a major and growing concern in many countries in the Asia-Pacific, um, particularly sort of very populous countries, India, China. Um, that's, you know, those the problem problems d difficulties around managing water quality and then where water quality is already very poor in in remediating lakes and streams and rivers this is you know these are going to be very very long-term battles um to to restore some of these environments um uh, and ecosystems so i think that yeah the challenge of pollution and water quality is is enormous in the asia pacific in the coming decades i would say you speak about China, but China is also one of the countries that's putting forward the sponge city concept, which has so much potential, both in China and I think internationally, um, in order to use natural systems to treat ambient water quality, address flooding, and hopefully eventually make it a little bit cleaner, a little bit more managed, I guess. Um, and do you see that that might be a real potential for China to be able to share its knowledge with the rest of the world, Australia, everywhere else, with these systems and the engineering practices and the results that they're going to be receiving from this? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, Chinese government is very committed to improve water management, um, extremely committed, and the Sponge Cities is one of the 
initiatives that's getting a lot of attention at the moment um, and there are huge possibilities for international collaboration there. Um, you know, Australia has its own kind of water-sensitive cities uh, approaches and technologies um, and, and we're you know, Australian um, educational institutions and firms are already um, cooperating heavily with, with Chinese um, partners on um, Sponge City initiatives. And, yeah, I think that, um, to China's credit, they're really recognising the potential benefits of relying on some of that green infrastructure uh, as opposed to uh, simply concrete uh, all the time. So I think that, um, yeah, there's there's massive potential for the Sponge Cities program. I think that's expanding rapidly. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that continues to be a major plank of the Chinese government's general response to um, water quality issues in cities and also scarcity um, and and general um, uh, urban planning for the future given that the the rate of urbanization in China is so huge I think that's that's one of the great opportunities in China is that uh, in many cases cities are uh, almost being built on you know vill villages are turning into towns are turning into cities in the space of a decade. So there's immense opportunities to, uh, rather than always retrofit, as the case would often be, or mostly be in developed countries um, or countries where economic and population growth is, uh, is much slower, or sorry, not population growth, but urbanisation rates. Um, instead, in China, there are many opportunities to, to almost, uh, as you say, start afresh and really uh, build cities from the bottom up to be to be um, sort of optimised for water sensitivity and water reuse and, and um, uh, adopting many of the best principles um, of uh, water management at the um, urban scale. I have one more question in this water quality space because uh, you've kind of hit a nerve for me. <laughs> I, used to, okay. <laughs> I used to run a program that was um, engaging citizen scientists to monitor ambient water quality here in San mm. Diego in nine of the catchments here. And it was, um, it was a challenge because it's difficult to articulate this kind of data, I think, to the general public for them to understand where the sources of pollution are coming from and how do you address them. But also, um, I, I found it to be one of the most exciting programs available to engage citizens in doing data collection because it gets them directly involved and it makes it tangible and it makes it real. And um, they feel empowered and they understand it. And now you have sampling methodologies where it's quite inexpensive, really, to go out and test for a lot of these things. I mean, down to toxicity, you can test for nutrients really easily. Bacteria, um, they're, they're developing like quick tests these days. You've got, um, yeah, the toxicity tests are, are quite quick as well. Do you see that there's a possibility, given the concern around ambient water quality for citizen scientists to play a role in the Asia Pacific, particularly in China? I know that there's a cultural difference. Definitely, you have also a whole policy difference here. We have the Clean Water Act in the United States. Um, but do you see that there might be a role for individuals to get involved in the science in order to support, I guess, improved catchment management um, with your experience in China or throughout the rest of the Asia Pacific? Just any thoughts you have. Yeah, sounds incredibly exciting. Uh, it's not something I really had given much thought to, but 
yeah, just as you're talking, I'm thinking it's would be fascinating and an, a really obvious way to improve the reliability of and and the um, scale at which we're able to collect that relevant data and to, and to closely monitor um, monitor developments at the catchment scale and the city scale. I think that um, definitely there's uh, you know just to talk about China again because that's I guess that's what I know best. There's you know. Chinese people, particularly Chinese, you know, city dwellers, are by and large very, very conscious of um, ambient, uh, particularly air quality. Um, so you know, there's immense numbers of apps. Uh, you know, most most Beijingers on their f smartphone would have more, one or more apps, uh, which they would check on a daily basis. Um, uh, regarding the water, uh, the air quality, so they would they would check the air quality probably every morning before they left home, um, and plan accordingly depending on on how bad it was at the time. So I think you know there's immense interest uh, in a place like China in understand having as much data as possible uh, for the, uh, for, for the individual in terms of making decisions about how they're going to live their life, uh, down to a day-to-day -day basis. So I think interest in, um, I think the connection between water and health is the key, the key one for driving action on water quality. Um, once people understand that poor water quality will has the potential to directly impact their health and the health of their their children. I think that will be that that can really drive action. Um, and people won't put up with poor water quality for very long if that's the case. And that's what we're seeing with air quality in China, um, which is becoming increasingly a very very difficult issue for the government to manage. Um, and I think that water quality in, in many of the large cities of the Asia-Pacific could, could go a similar way in that um, in terms of ambient water quality, if, if people had the, the tools to, to quickly go down to the local uh, stream or drain or whatever it might be and uh, determine what the quality of that water was and if, if it was you know, very poor or toxic, I'm, I'm sure that you know, they would be uh, much more likely to be up in arms about it than if they were kind of disconnected from that reality and weren't aware of, of uh, just how bad it might be. So I think that um, in terms of citizen scientists acting and then um, generating data and then acting on that to, to put pressure on um, decision makers and water managers to, to rectify water quality, poor water quality situations, I think that has huge potential in, in the Asia-Pacific broadly, I would say. In, in the Asia-Pacific, as well as many other countries other than oh, absolutely. the U.S. Yeah, yeah. also, it's like you think about mm. fisheries and the value of fisheries and how critical it is to have decent water for the fish that you're going to be eating uh, yeah. to, to live in. And, yeah. you know, even, even here in San Diego, there's a lot of people who rely on um, just coastal fishing. And when you have a lot of metals coming out, the metals are accumulating in the fish and, and that's directly yeah. impacting people's livelihoods. And I think in other countries that you see that on just a much larger scale. Um, so Yeah, the, uh, the, the link between um, food quality and human health in China has gone from being not, not much of an issue at all 15 years ago to now 
I mean, you know, particularly the growing middle class, they are very, very conscious by and large of the fact that, you know, their food needs to be of a high quality and they have real concerns around the existence of, you know, heavy metals in food and what's in their fish that's coming out of, uh, you know, whichever sea it might be. So I think, you know, down to the extent that, again, to, as you say, technology follows closely behind. I remember several years ago reading a news article about a pair of chopsticks that had been developed that could automatically detect levels of various um, uh, toxins or carcinogens in, in, in food um, or could automatically verify the uh, fact that your dumpling was uh, was actually a uh, yeah, had had real meat in it as opposed to some mm -hmm. other kind of substitute. So I mean, the, the, you know, the, the people's responses to um, what they might perceive as as risks around human health in relation to food, water, and air are very very rapid and have massive consequences for um, for the producers of food and and for government actors and um, yeah, for, for the general society in those countries. Yuck, I'm just picturing sitting around a table with your family and having your chopsticks glow or something all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oops. yeah. <laughs> all right, dinner's off, people. Let's get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. between that and smartphones and just, yeah, quick sampling methodologies that are popping up all over the place, there's, there's, there's the potential for so much data to be generated and shared to transform the mm. way that yeah food and water is managed so it goes back to that nexus again yeah all right well i know that we've spent quite a bit of time already discussing um a lot of issues so i'd like to go ahead and close it with my closing question which is um to ask you what advice or direction would you give others young professionals or people who are uh, studying at the moment, maybe at university, who are looking to get involved in the kind of work that you do and the kind of issues that we've been discussing over the past hour, um, what would you tell them? I think I would say, yeah, don't be don't be shy or uh, concerned about what you might perceive as limited opportunities. I think water management, water policy is an area of concern that's not going away anytime soon, particularly in the Asia-Pacific. Um, and it's now recognised as critically important, not just by governments, but increasingly by other major employers. So the con you know, concept of water risk and water stewardship and the role of corporations in protecting water resources and sustainably managing water, there are... I would say in the future, in the next five to ten years and beyond, going to be more and more and more and more water management jobs that are working for companies and businesses that, on the face of it, you know, that don't have water in the title, that don't, on the face of it, have anything much to do with water. But of course, you know, water being a critical input into everything, just about, uh, you know, is. Uh, I think more and more major corporations, for example, are going to be employing people to manage the risk associated with that, that company's interaction with water resources. So I think there's going to be a lot of jobs and opportunities in areas that current students of water policy or water management might not think 
are areas you might not be areas that they would automatically think of of looking for work in so i think there's going to be massive opportunities there um and the other thing i would say is just to put forward ideas i think that there's you know as as we kind of touched on earlier when we we're talking about the work that eighth is doing with with the australian government and the framework that we're working on you know, there's a need, a lot of ideas have been put forward, um, a lot of great reports have been published, but there is still an immense need for for action and for good ideas to be implemented at a, a range of different scales, from the individual household, the individual farm, to, to, the, to the nation state. And I think that across that full range of scales, there's a real need for solutions to be developed and implemented quickly, or... Some very dire situations are going to become much, much worse. So I think that, um, yeah, the massive potential to to um, work in a whole range of different roles for young water professionals um, and water managers, from from scientists to lawyers to um, you know, policy specialists, um, and increasingly, uh, you know, really good ideas are going to stand out. So I think that um, it's a great time to be involved in the industry there's a lot of challenges um, and there's a lot of good work that needs to be done um, in collaboration with a whole bunch of partners so I think yeah there's huge opportunities for people to get involved um, that uh, you know from from countries perhaps that haven't you know, traditionally been heavily involved or highly represented in international organisations in, in water management and water policy, I think you know, we need to keep diversifying the, the international water management kind of community. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities out there and um, I think people just need to be creative and thinking about where they might fit in. Hey, I always think about how the kind of jobs that are going to exist in 20, 25 years just don't exist yet. I mean, the job that I have now did not exist when I was finishing university. Same with you, I'm sure. Um, yeah, things yeah, things move quickly. Technology moves quickly. Ideas lead to innovation, lead to whole new opportunities. It is an exciting field, So, and there's a lot to do. So, yeah. Great. <laughs> Great, Hugh. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It has been fantastic to speak with you. And um, I have to say, personally, I really appreciated the water quality discussion because <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's near and dear to my heart. So that was great. I'm glad. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Karen. And thanks for the opportunity to be involved. Hi, it's Karen again. One last thing before you go. If you've enjoyed this interview and previous interviews, I'd like to invite you to subscribe on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And also, if you could please give us a five-star rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It helps us get the word out. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of your day. The Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more. <laughs>